All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's everybody doing? Tim Reed is my guest today. Tim Reed, uh, I imagine most of you know him as Venus Flytrap from WKRP in Cincinnati. I don't know that my younger listeners would know that. He also had a show, uh, a fairly uh, revolutionary show, just in the sense it was a black lead. But that was uh, Frank's place. And uh, I mean, he's been on dozens of TV shows and he's a director as well. But he's been working for you know at least 50 years. And he started as a comic. This is the intent. Uh, this is what brought me to him. Tom Dreesen, who was on this show, uh, also a comic, lifer, uh, was in a comedy team with Tim Reed at the in the seventies, and they did they performed at the Comedy Store. And Dreesen went on to live a life in stand up, and and Tim went on to to act. And the reason he's on is he's part of this new documentary called uh, Live at Mr. Kelly's, and it's about the iconic Chicago nightclub, Mr. Kelly's, which has been mentioned on this show by several old-timers. Shelley Berman comes to mind, but it was this uh, a very um, popular but progressive and interesting nightclub in Chicago. I think it was, uh, it was started maybe in the 50s or 60s. I don't know. Watch the documentary when it comes out. But, you know, getting back into that old comedy talk, Old comedy store talk, I just love it. And I'm so weirdly, not weirdly, but I am definitely born again comedy store. But I never left. I mean, you know, the pandemic, you know, I wasn't there, but I am there every night. I mean, if you get excited, if you work at a place every night and all of a sudden you're like excited to get the new T-shirts, you're, you are part of that place. I've been, append, I've been an appendage of that place since I was 21 years old, 22 years old. I just wasn't around for a few years, but you know, you know the story about me in that place. I'm just fucking happy about the new t-shirts. Come on, the world is ending. Buy yourself some pants. Went out and bought some pants. I Slightly fat pants. Not totally fat pants, slightly fat pants. We'll see what happens. And I went and got, I went to this place because I wanted to get these weird ass pants that I, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm just saying, treat yourself. Throw away those underpants. They're they're nasty. Um, but what I was saying is I've had a couple weeks downtime between, you know, my last gig, when was at Salt Lake City and St. Louis, which is this week. Uh, come on down. There are some tickets uh, left, certainly for the late shows, which uh, be nice if you come. And I promise I won't dump on, this, uh, on the state too much when I'm there. I, I'll do the other stuff. I'll do a broader dumpage, funny dumpage. I spoke to my father. He's losing his mind a little bit. It's starting to happen. And it's uh, it's sad and scary, and, but it does make him a little more vulnerable, uh, which is kind of nice in an emotional way. I mean, I'm just looking for a silver lining. You know what I mean? Don't miss that sweet spot at the beginning uh, of whatever breakdown is happening mentally to your loved ones. But uh, he, I've forgotten that he and his wife, Rosie, sometimes spend the day uh, at the movies, either watching the same movie again and again or, or going from theater to theater in a multiplex. And uh, my dad and his wife went to see The Card Counter, the new Paul Schrader film. 
uh, which looks pretty good. But, you know, Paul Schrader is not in, uh, an easy filmmaker to process and digest. There's been some Paul Schrader movies that uh, defy uh, narrative uh, uh, standards. There's been some great ones. Schrader's heavy, man. So I guess I get on the phone with my dad and uh, he and his wife had gone to see the card counter. My father was like, I don't know. I couldn't follow it. I didn't understand it. And uh, even when Rosie explained it to me, I didn't, uh, I still couldn't, I couldn't get it. I didn't understand it. And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's just the way it's going to be from now on, dad. Some of these things are going to get by you. He's like, no, we saw it again. I still didn't understand. So they sat there and watched it twice, and my father couldn't wrap his brain around. He seems it just seemed too complicated. And then when I realized it was a Paul Schrader movie, I realized, like, you know what? It, it might be, it might not be my father's mental state right now. It might actually be the film. So I'm going to give my dad the benefit of the doubt until I see the movie. And I will see the movie. It's playing down the street. I always like his movie. Autofocus, really, autofocus is a masterpiece. And obviously, the, some of the movies he's written uh, were quite good. You know, people enjoy The Taxi Driver. Blue Collar, that was an amazing movie. He wrote and directed that with Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel, Hardcore, that weird George C. Scott movie where he goes to like rescue his daughter from the world of porn. That was a written and directed by Schrader. Great. He wrote Raging Bull, amazing. Jeez, man. Wrote The Last Temptation of Christ. Heavy hitter, man. But the review from my father was, uh, the card counter is uh, uh, complicated. I couldn't follow it. Barry Marin. All right, folks. Let's talk to Tim Reed. The documentary Live at Mr. Kelly's will be released uh, next month on, on VOD and DVD. But, uh, but, you know, Tim has had a life in show business and uh, an, a life in comedy early on in his career. And I was curious about that. And it was, uh, it was nice talking to this guy. So where are you, down there in uh, Virginia? Yeah, Richmond. In my office at Richmond. Oh, that's nice. I've been there. I, used to, I did comedy there a million years ago. What place then? I don't know what was happening then. There was a there was a, a small club there. God, I wish I could remember the name of it. I did it a couple of times because I knew I had a friend down there. You come from there? Born and raised in Norfolk, further down, about an hour uh, south of here. I have no sense of Virginia. On the ocean, where all the ships are built. <laughs> oh, that's nice. But like, you know, like I, as a state, is it, would you say it's an, a good state? Oh gosh, yes. It's uh, right now economically, it's a um, most uh, economically sound state in the in the union. Really? Uh, yeah. What's the, what's the business? Oh, you name it. I mean, we have several military operations here: right. the Pentagon, Langley, uh, oh. but we also uh, the shipbuilding uh, uh, part for the for the armed forces. All the carriers and ships are built down in uh, Norfolk Hampton Roads area. Was that what business your your uh, family was in? No, 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 no. No, no. I was born and raised in uh, what we would call nowadays color town. <laughs> so uh, that wasn't, um, we weren't allowed to work in those industries at that time. Oh, no kidding. So what'd your, uh, what'd your folks do? Uh, laborers. My mother and my grandmother started out working in uh, 
white folks' homes. And then uh, my grandmother was a businesswoman, owned a boarding house, sold whiskey illegal, and ran the numbers. So oh, she yeah. did very well. <laughs> did you remember her? Very much. I was raised by her. Oh, really? So she uh, she did the uh, she she did what was necessary. Yeah, and in a very uh, interesting way, to say the least. She was a very tough woman. I mean, uh, had great character, but uh, not to be fooled with by anyone. Really know? tough. You didn't pay the rent, you might get knocked out. <laughs> really? Yeah, you know, that song. Uh, one of my favorite songs was Betty Davis Eyes, because uh-huh. my grandmother had Betty Davis Eyes, sort of like an attitude, like Humphrey Bogart, but she was a tough woman. Wow. So uh, how come you were uh, raised by her? Well, my mother couldn't uh, couldn't handle me at that point. She was going through some very difficult times, uh-huh. and uh, this, she was living in Baltimore. I was in Baltimore with her at that time, and around the age nine, uh, I didn't know who my father was at that time, but around the age nine, she... Uh, she said, uh, maybe it's best that you go live with your grandmother uh, and uh, she can take better care of you. And so I did. And uh, my grandma, I stayed with my grandmother till my teen years. <laughs> Wonderful, exciting life, to say the least. It's one of the reasons I'm in the business I'm in today, because my grandmother just de- uh, designated me as the family storyteller. So uh, she would uh, force me to uh, reiterate what was happening in the family or if I went to church, you know, I had to go to church on Sundays to get my allowance. If I didn't go, I didn't get my 25 cents. So, uh, but I would also have to tell the stories of what happened in the choir on Thursday rehearsals and what was going on in the neighborhood. As I said, we lived in a segregated, very uh, busy and interesting uh, community at that time prior to civil rights. And uh, uh, most of the people in my area uh, were workers, post office, educators, and uh, very interesting. I never spoke social to a white person. I worked for one until I was a freshman in college. Really? Completely segregated. So was that out of fear or just the way it was? No, out of choice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, was our, it was our neighborhood. You know, white folks didn't come down to where we were. They yeah. did. They were wearing a badge, badge or trying to collect uh, insurance money for some uh, bogus policy. Right. But... Um, a few, you know, we had some, um, a few uh, merchants, Jewish merchants who, who um, ran small shops or, uh, but by and large, all the businesses uh, from my growing up were owned or operated by blacks. We had about seven movie theaters in walking distance of my house and they were all managed or owned by black drugstores. Uh, it was an interesting community at that time, self-efficient uh, and uh, sufficient, I should say. And, um, Whenever we went uptown, or uh, in, in close, and the you know we put on a whole different swagger, a whole different uh, face. But uh, it, it was uh, it was an interesting community to be, to be. It was all sort of changed and lost. Uh, much of it lost um, in terms of its self sufficiency. You know, our uh-huh. dollar didn't didn't leave our neighborhood till about maybe seven or eight times turning over before it left our neighborhood. Would you return back to that neighborhood? Did it just sort of dissipate or what happened to it? Well, it, it just, uh, well, you know, when uh, when the dominant culture realizes you got a good thing, of course, they want to take a part of it and soon take it over. It's all gone. Uh-huh. Uh, I have a photo that was taken um, at this time. I lived in uh, my grandmother's house. This is my grandmother's um, uh, third house. And um, because they took the first two and in, uh, in uh, uh eminent domain when they wanted to bring as they did in all the segregated communities in the south 
they ran the freeway system through it or built new thoroughfares for other folks to move through it quickly. And of course, they tore down and or took over the housing. So in, a, in this picture, you might see, I would say, maybe three to 4,000 homes from this aerial photograph in 1953, 54. Yeah. And today, you might only see 30 or 40. It's so amazing you bring that up because, you, you know, I was watching the uh, Mr. Kelly's documentary yesterday. Yeah. Dick Gregory does a joke about it. About the freeway. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then I read an article today that it's happening again in South Carolina. Of course. Yeah. It, it, you either bring the uh, railroad system or the freeway system through. And, um, of course, you destroy, divide the community. It happened in New Orleans and Memphis and Chicago, the Dan Ryan, all of that. Um, uh, AS was designated because, uh, first of all, uh, they wanted to keep the value of their communities high and and putting a freeway system right through the predominantly black-owned homes and, and places where they live. But they, 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 I guess they call themselves doing us a favor. They built the project. Uh, of course, you can't own them. Yeah. And, uh, but it was an interesting life. And I think that that's uh, not something I say was, it's not a point of better than, or it was in context of how we live. And out of that, many people, such as myself, carried on a successful life thereafter. Uh, from a lot of the survival training we received in those communities. Did you have a sense of not, not, I mean, you know, storytelling is one thing, but were you uh, a comedy fan? No, no. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, in terms of, of the people who in our neighborhood, uh, were successful comedians. Um, I, I think the first coming of age comic that I saw that I followed throughout my career until his end was Richard Pryor. But when I saw him, he was doing like the Ed Sullivan show and uh, yeah. stuff like that. He was a different comic back then. Right. And, and, and which leads me to Mr. Kelly's because it was seeing him at Mr. Kelly's that changed my life and got me in entertainment. But back in those days, there was Moms Mabley, there was Mantan Moreland. There was these wonderful comics who would come through our communities because they could they had to stay in our communities. So the black owned hotels. There was a woman there, a very successful black woman called Bonnie McGeechee, and she owned the hotel in, in Norfolk uh, and a few bars and all the celebrities from Count Count Basie, Cab Calloway, to Pick, they all had to stay. They couldn't stay in the white neighborhood. Right. The hotel. So they stayed in these black communities. And um, and they performed there? So, oh, yeah. They performed at one of the two of the theaters. They would have a thing called the Midnight Ramble. And the Midnight Ramble would go on after whatever... Uh, movie that was showing after it would start and the movie would go be over around 9.30 and they would empty the theaters of all the ki kids and then the adults would come in for the midnight ramble and you would see uh, live shows, moms made the whole bit, you know. So you remember seeing that? Did you see them? Yeah, we used to sneak in. We'd hide, sneak in and get caught, get thrown out. But uh, And then, you know, again, they, they would stay in the neighborhood if they were there for a day or two. They would just be passing through not only uh, black performers, but even some of the white performers, uh, especially in doing the, the, the craze of cowboy movies uh, back in the late 50s. Uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, Whip, what is it? Whip Wilson, uh, all these guys used to come through. Gabby Hayes almost killed me. Uh, he came through and we would have these matinees, uh, afternoon matinees, cost you 10 cents. Yeah. And you'd sit in there with hundreds of screaming children. Yeah. And they would show the movie, whatever it was, Outlaws or whatever the movie was. 
And then they would break in between because we would double features in those days. Sure. And uh, they would break and then out would come this celebrity. In yeah. this case, it was Gabby Hayes. Gabby Hayes. <laughs> and he got up and, you know, he was hello, kids, or whatever he would say. And he'd be up there for about, at most, 10 to 15 minutes. And then he was taken off to some other thing. They made that extra money. He uh, he asked uh, once, I bring two kids up here. And he, I happened to be one of the kids he brought up. And for some reason, in his act, he said, I bet you I can lift you with two fingers. And I went, huh? And <laughs> when I said that, he sat that and hit me right under my throat and literally lift me right off the stage because I was in shock. But he pushed uh, back in my throat. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't get another air. And he noticed that and had one of his guys saw that it was a problem. This kid was probably going to choke to death. <laughs> so they grabbed me and took me to the side of the wall and threw me out into the street. <laughs> really? <laughs> the door opened and I went out and the sun was so bright because I'd come out that it awakened me. I mean, it caused me to uh, get a gasp of air. Yeah. And uh, I was able to breathe. And I went back in to try it again. They wouldn't let me in. I didn't have 10 cents. And That's crazy. on stage. That was your big break. <laughs> My big break. And it was over in about was, a matter of a minute. <laughs> was being physically abused by a white cowboy actor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy, man. But it's, you know, it, it's um, the lesson that uh, you learn in those days stuck with you and you would you would survive. Um, I, I, one of the reasons I'm so happy to be a part of uh, the uh, discussion of, of Mr. Kelly's is because um, when I left that community, I'm telling you about after graduating from college, uh, my first job after the civil rights era was uh, uh, being hired by E.I. DuPont. And I was the first black hired in their management training program. They had blacks working in, in, in factories and stuff, but not in management training. Now, this was and in uh, the, that's what brought you to Chicago? That's what brought me to Chicago. I arrived in Chicago in 68, a few days after the assassination of Dr. King. And of course, the streets were filled with, with military vehicles and uh, the city was burning. And um, I got my first home. I was literally living in the projects in that February of that year. And then April of that year, I moved into the first house I ever owned. And um, about a few months later, on uh, New Year's Eve, I will, I will never forget it as long as I live. Um, this was 68, New Year's Eve. <clears throat> I happened to pick up the paper, and I saw an ad from Mr. Kelly's. Yeah. It said, tonight, Richard Pryor. Yeah. Bring in the new you. And I'm going, Richard Pryor. I want to see him. I'd seen him on the Ed Sullivan show. So I looked at my wife. Remember, I'm country boy coming from a little a closed community. I don't understand the big time. Never been in a nightclub in my life. Really? Oh, no, no. I said, let's go down to see Mr. Kelly's. And uh, my wife said, okay. So we dressed up. This is New Year's Eve around four o'clock. We yeah. dress up to drive down to see Mr. Kelly's. I get down the rest street. It's nine degrees below zero. It is so cold. I had, oh, God, it was cold. <laughs> and I, I don't want to get out and stand in line. I see this line. I'm going, that's way. I'm not standing in line. And luckily, uh, I was trying to find a place to park. We must have circled about eight times. So finally, someone took a sign and flipped it from full to womb. There was one spot. Somebody left early. Yeah. And we pulled in. I walked around to the front door, banging on the door because I didn't want to stand in line. I didn't have a ticket. Trying to figure out how do I get in? Yeah. And Major D comes to the door and says, what? What do you want? I said, we'd like to uh, see Mr. Kelly. He said, what? <laughs> I said, we'd like to get a ticket to see <laughs> Richard Pryor. He said, young man, 
what, do you understand? You see all those people? I said, yes. He said, they've been, some of them had reservations a year ago. <laughs> you think you can just, now he's a little angry with yeah, me. Yeah, right? right, yeah. So where are you from? And I said, I'm from Virginia. So now he said, all right, let me give this guy a lesson in show business. So he yeah. said, yeah. And about that time, they let out the first show. So he had let me in to because he didn't want to stand in the cold. So he right. let me in and chastised me. But we were blocking the exit for other people. So he said, stand over there out of the way. Just stand over there. So we get over there. They emptied the whole room. Yeah. And by the time they entered the room, he turned to say something to me. And he said, just, just stay there. And he let everybody else in. Yeah. So now they let everybody off the street in. And now he can tell me how stupid I am. About that time, a fight broke out right at the bar. I don't know if you've ever been Mr. Kelly's Jose, but you come in the door and the bar yeah. was elevated up. As soon as you come in, the bar was to your left, elevated. A woman and, her, and I guess her husband got into a, a big brawl at the bar and they struggled and she threw a drink and, and threw it on him and broke the glass and everybody paid attention, of course, to HD. Yeah. And they just left the club yelling. And he said, are you coming back? The guy said no. And they left. And they looked at me and said, take those two seats at the bar. <laughs> we, go, we sit at the bar and and uh, the first singer or whatever. And then out came Richard Pryor. Yeah. What a performance. I'd never seen anything live like that. And he just, he had the room in hysterics. He did an incredible show. And when he finished, I looked at my first wife. I said, uh, Rita, I said, you know what? I want to do that. I want to do it on that stage. And I want to do it on New Year's Eve. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you know, Mr. Kelly's um, shut down um, and uh, 75, I think, or 76. But I was the last comic to work Mr. Kelly's on New Year's Eve before it closed. You did it. I did it. I worked as well. We worked. I, Tom and I worked as a team very successfully for for several years. Yeah. Because I've talked to uh, I talked to Tom. Not too long ago. I don't, he said, I knew he was from Chicago, but how did you guys come together? Well, um, ironically, uh, as I said, New Year's Eve, I was watching it at Kelly's. Yeah. And then 69, I happened to meet Tom for the first time in a JC meeting. I wanted to, the unit, the company really wanted the employees to get involved with their community. And I just bought a house in uh, Markham, Illinois, which is right next to Harvey, where Tom's from. Yeah. And uh, I went to the JC meeting. I said, I want to join the JC. What is the JC? Chamber of Commerce. Junior Chamber of Commerce. I, I never and, understood uh, what that is about. What is that? What do they do? <laughs> it, was a, it was a community organization that worked in community, tried to uh, uh, raise awareness of, of the business opportunities economically, but also help with the community. They did things like Fun uh, fundraiser drives to help kids uh -huh. buy things for pencils and stuff and yeah. all kinds of programs. Right. Um, and so that night uh, that I joined, they mentioned that there were some issues in the community that they needed to uh, pay some attention to. It was drug abuse that was happening in these young and these with these young students in elementary schools, and they wanted some of us to go and just talk to these kids. And yeah. Tom being from the streets, me being from the streets. Uh, I volunteered, but he said, I don't, I, I'm sorry, but I got everybody. He said, but give me your name. If anybody drops out, I'll call you. Yeah. Literally three days later, someone dropped out. He and I started this program with a police officer. Right. And we I went remember this. Yeah. And the program became so successful that it was uh, adopted by JC chapters throughout America and 16 foreign countries. The one that you and Tom did. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was a very successful program. And we used humor. And we tried, because again, we were street kids and, and, uh, and we knew a little bit about that. My, my stepfather at that time was a heroin addict, not at that time, prior to me growing up was a heroin addict. And so I knew, uh, I knew the, a lot about the, the dark side of uh, drug abuse. Did you and find so, out uh, where your, your real dad was? Yes, I found out my real dad was, he was, he was, he was my uncle. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's who I thought he was for all those years. Later found out he was my father. <laughs> And uh, we became we became dear friends. And, so he was and, around. Uh, yeah, he was around, but he was my uncle. I thought. Yeah, it, no one told you, huh? Never told me until I was ten years old and was living with my grandmother, his uh, mother. Yeah. And uh, they got me together and they sat down and told me, and um, yeah, I was happy for it. He was a cool dude. I liked him. <laughs> uh, but you know, but the the man your mom was with when you were really young was a junkie. Yeah, that's the one that I had to leave. Um, I couldn't stay with mother because he was he was a very uh, difficult man to yeah. say the least to live with, and uh, there were always economic problems. We were yeah. poor, and he would be there, and you oh. know, it's a very difficult life. So my grandmother uh, came up to get me with my uncle, uh, trying to save me from what they thought was going to be a pretty bad life. And what happened? Did. What and happened to your mother? She went on. I mean, she finally uh, was smart enough to leave that man. She ended up. Uh, having a very difficult life till I started making money in show business and I brought her and took care of her for the rest of her life. You did? Yeah, yeah. That so, must have uh, felt good. Huh? Yeah, it was good. It was, I mean, certainly happy to take care of my family, but um, it was it was a difficult time. I, my um, my grandmother, who, I, who again raised me, and, yeah. and, and so much of her is in me. Um, and my father, they passed away in the same year. Oh. So I lost the two most important uh, people in my life. And then my mother was having some very difficult times. So it was, um, I was thrust into uh, head of the family long before I was ready to, to take that mantle. That's why I think Tom and I got along so well, so well together because of his difficult past, my difficult past. Um, well, he had the weird thing too, where he didn't know who was who. Yeah. And then he found out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, and, and I think that's one of the reasons Richard uh, Pryor and I got along so well. After we uh, finally, I met him a few years later, and we became, uh, I would say, I wouldn't say deep friends, but acquaintances, and always uh, I had the opportunity to spend a little time with him occasionally. And uh, his past and my past, there were some similarities. Yeah. And um, uh, we came out of that era, and so did Tom. Um, so you and so, Tom do this. You do that. You put together this shtick to help the kids. Yeah, we do that. And finally, one day in uh, in our doing our program in the morning, one of the kids said, to us, "You guys are funny. You ought to be a comedy team." And we had never thought about it. And huh. we thought, "Huh." So one night uh, <laughs> at the bar, having a drink, he said, "You think what I'm thinking?" I said, "Yeah. You want to try?" He said, "Why not?" And um, that was in uh, late '69, and we started uh, performing in local spots and every way we could work, and ended up at Mr. Kelly's. I think in '70, our first time was '72, I believe. So what's it? What's the scene though? So you like, what do you do with Dupont? You just say you 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 hold them both well, jobs. And- I was working. I stayed with Dupont for about a year, year and a half and moonlighted as a comic. Wasn't that much work at that time. There were no comedy clubs. Back right. In those yeah, days. of course. Yeah. So we had to kind of, you know, you end up working everywhere. The Chitlin circuit, the, 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 
the Polish circuit, the Italian circuit. I mean, so you're really, always so what, what are you, but are you opening for musical acts or what are you doing? All what is they that? Are you go in, you hustle, you, you know, you, wherever there's a restaurant with a singer, they might be use a comic. We got lucky and, uh, we opened for uh, Count Basie, Sarah Vaughn, all those people. When they would come through the community, you know, they, they would need somebody to be sort of an MC comic. And they give you a few dollars, not a lot. And uh, but it gave us an opportunity to work. And then we worked those uh, those clubs at that time, the Burning Spear, all those black clubs that were interested in going black and white. guy. Let's see what they're up to. And then we, we worked ourselves to the north side, start working uh, things up there. And then finally, one day. Um, we got uh, Mr. Kelly. Well, what what was it like for you guys? I mean, what, how did they receive, you know, Tom? And, how, you know, I mean, what was there ever tension? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> uh, this fight, tension. I got poisoned. Uh, they chased Tom out of a place. That he had long, I mean, you got poisoned? You think of, yeah, I got poisoned. In, uh, I think it was in North Dakota somewhere. But uh, anyway, uh, the, the thing about that era was that whenever we walked out on stage and yeah. we opened for some of the most unusual, we opened for Shana Nana Na, we opened for uh, uh, Clinton and the fight and Funkadelic. We opened for the Dells. We, yeah. I mean, we, we opened for really interesting uh, groups and we were never expected. So whenever we walked out there uh, for our career, the first few seconds, say 40 seconds to a minute, it was complete silence. No matter whether it was a black audience, white audience, or mixed audience, they didn't know what to do with it. They were well, they were afraid. They were inquisitive, like, "What is going to happen now?" Yeah, <laughs> and so uh, you had to get them, and you had to get them quickly. Now, if you were successful, and we weren't always successful uh, in getting them, we had to build some time. But if you got them early on, it was a heck of a show. Yeah, we challenged. Uh, we didn't write quote race jokes. There was no race yeah. jokes. Basically, what we did was be ourselves and take the world through the world that as we saw it and right. as we responded to it. And again, places like uh, the Playboy Clubs and Mr. Kelly's were going through the same kind of thing. You know, it's hard to think about Kelly's and not think about contextual lifestyle at that time. Yeah. You know, uh, Mr. Kelly's were breaking ground. And but in Chicago, it was just taken as part of the part of the deal. Once you were in the club, outside yeah. the club, it's a whole different thing. You, right. You didn't want to go to Cicero and you didn't want to go to these places and they didn't want to go down to the South side. But yeah. in that club, it had an atmosphere that is hard to find if at all today in a club. You knew you were going to see something interesting. You knew the performers, whether they were singers, you knew you were seeing, in many cases, the first time that someone ever really got, quote, in the beginning of the big time. See, Kelly's, you know, if you were a performer, you dreamed of working Kelly. I mean, like I said, the first time I went in there, I wanted to be in that place. Who was like, who was doing the circuit when you were around? Who were your contemporaries that you'd see out and about? Gosh, well, of course, uh, I wouldn't call them contemporaries, but who were working a club at that time was, of course, Dick Gregory, yeah. uh, Stoy Mitchell, uh, oh my God, uh, Billy Wallace. Um, all the top comics we opened for at Kelly's, we opened for uh, uh, some of the greats, you know, uh, as I said, Sarah Vaughn. Yeah. We, we opened uh, for Della Reese. But I saw in there Bette Midler's first uh, foray into nightclub business when she left the, the bath in New York. One yeah. of her first club gigs was Mr. Kelly's. 
you know, you would see anyone. You see the Smothers Brothers. You see anybody there. I mean, if you were entertainment and you were quote making your way and rising above the 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 fray, that 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 level of I'm going near yeah. the big time, you wanted to and had to work, Mr. Kelly's. I mean, you just. You weren't in show business until you really did it. Sure, and then you were doing the road. I mean, South. How'd you get to? How'd you get to get poisoned in the in South Dakota? Well, you know, you luckily we hooked up with a group uh, out of Chicago that were doing colleges, uh, um, putting together college bills, and there weren't many. But we went to uh, Mankato. Uh, we went to uh, Fargo, yeah. uh, North Dakota. We went to these places, these Shadron State. You know, we went to these small colleges and we follow, we open for Neil Diamond. We open for musical group bread. We open yeah. for whoever was there. We'd get a few bucks and we'd open for them. But of course they didn't give you a lot and we had to get there. So we didn't make a lot of money. We had to drive wherever we were. If in the case of the, uh, uh, North Dakota, you know, you sometimes you spend seven, eight hours in a, in a, in a car. Oh, I know. I know. I've done it. Yeah. And we stopped to eat. And sometimes the places that we stopped in, people didn't didn't take kindly to either my presence or his presence. Interesting. And uh, so we got po- I got poisoned up in that area, and he got attacked in a place in Missouri. We had we had worked um, a prison, um, and that in Missouri, I think Joplin. Uh, well, anyway, we worked a prison. We were coming back and hungry. Was oh man, was doing it just before Thanksgiving. I'll never forget. We went in this bar to eat. The only thing yeah. open roadside and there were about yeah. four or five motorcycles parked outside but hunger will force you to do things sometimes your brain tells you not to do yeah. and we and we were very hungry we went in there and it was funny he was giving me a lecture he said now look keep your attitude down don't let your temper get you know because we could get hurt in here oh yeah 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 you know i know what i'm doing i'll handle these crackers and <laughs> so <laughs> yeah he was he was coaching me we go in there at that time, he had long hair. Oh, you know, no shit. Kind of looking fella. He had that long. And as soon as we sat down, uh, a few of these uh, tough bikers said, look at that long-haired weirdo over there. And uh, we weren't paying no attention. And But they didn't like Tom. And they were giving him a hard time. <laughs> oh, no. And we were, we were waiting to... to uh, have our food come, but we realized that it was time to leave. Oh, no, food yeah. No food. So he said, uh, he said, uh, do me a favor. He said, you go start the car oh. and turn it around. Yeah. And uh, I said, no. He said, no, no, go, go. I said, don't start. He said, I'm not going to start anything. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I go out and get the car, pull it around by the door, flip his door open, and he gets up and uh, really gives these guys uh, – uh, an interesting <laughs> discussion about who they are and how yeah. small certain parts of their bodies. Wow. <laughs> when they uh, finally went after him, he rushed out the door, slammed it, and jumped in my car, and we took out about three motorcycles and got away from there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you had to take out the motorcycles. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had to back up. And, uh, oh, jeez. They could follow us. That's so crazy. We didn't that night. Yeah, just look. I mean, we got attacked on stage, throwing things at us, you know. And uh, it was an interesting, but again, two guys from the street um, who believed that um, they had an idea that would work. Uh, we were funny at times. We worked our act 
uh, strong enough to be in places like Mr. Kelly's and the Playboy Circuit. We worked the Playboy Circuit at that time all over America. Playboy clubs? Yeah, all of them. You know, we worked those, Boston, L.A. Were those nice? Well, it was very nice. It, it gave you a t- chance uh, to work your act. You know, back in those days, unlike today, you know, kids can use language more than words. You yeah. Know, a four-letter right. word is a punchline. And, but back when we were doing it, you had to have an act. I mean, you, you, yeah. had to, you had to be able, you couldn't say those things. You couldn't curse. What was the headlining show? Was it like at 35, 40 minutes? Uh, depending on the, on, the, on the place. If we were headliners, uh, which we were a few times, we had to do anywhere from 40 to uh, 45, 40 to 60 minutes. Yeah. If we were, of course, most of the time we were opening act. And uh, we would do, depending if it was a Playboy Club, 18 minutes. And they meant 18 minutes. No kidding. You do under under eighteen, you didn't get paid. You went over twenty, and they wouldn't bring the hook. Uh, so we do uh, Playboy clubs, and we were uh, eighteen minutes. Uh, Kelly's, we had uh, almost thirty minutes. Uh, they were very strict about time, very strict about language. Um, racially, we never had any issues because we, we, you know, we were racial just by standing up on stage next yeah. to one another. I mean, you didn't right. back in the day see a whole lot of integrated conversation. But you guys, you addressed it though, right? Well, yeah, we did, but we did it in our own way. We did, you know, it wasn't the, it was, it was putting each other in situations where race uh, was the, was the elephant in the room, you know, but we didn't talk about the elephant. Right. And so they would, they would, we did things like uh, uh, um, we had a couple of routines that I went to visit his Italian family right? and the things that I was saying in the wrong way. And, and then we did one where he had, we had to go somewhere in a black community. He wanted me to teach him how to be black. Oh yeah. And I would, you know, things like that, yeah. that uh, the audience could really relate to because many of them were thinking or thinking about maybe I'll have a black friend or a white friend. I wonder how sure. that would be. And then we did things yeah. like the dating game where, I played uh, three characters and he played the, 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 the young lady, you know, and it was yeah, always going to be right. a brother, one of those characters. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> so it was those kind of things that we did and we worked wherever we worked. And, and uh, we had a predominant, uh, Mr. Kelly was always an integrated audience, but if we worked a club where it was predominantly black, um, the, the first few minutes or seconds were always the same. Whether it was all black or all white, it was all, what is this? Yeah. What's going to happen here? Yeah. As as soon as you could see that you were going to have fun and the audience could see that, okay, they're going to have fun with this. This is different. You would always win them over. I mean, I think it's really difficult for me, you know, just as a, as a white guy, my age, mm-hmm. you know, to sort of, you know, really kind of like try to put myself in the place that, that you came up in, in the sense mm-hmm. that this is, you know, this is not this is not ancient history. This is recently. It's recently. <laughs> Definitely. You know, I tell people uh, when I was living in the community in which I explained, uh, uh, we couldn't vote. Uh, they had poll tax. You know, this is this is not long ago. This is like you say, it's in my lifetime. Yeah. Uh, where I had to get on a bus and sit in the back because the sign said colored back here. Uh, all those things. I went to all black schools. Tom was actually my first white friend. The first white person I had any social discussion with was Tom Jason. I had none before that. And I wasn't, quote, looking for any, just that was not in my peripheral life. So, you know, when did you guys come out here? 
California? Oh, California, we went out there first time to work the Playboy Club. And uh, then we had a ma- uh, Della Reese's manager, a gentleman by the name of Lee Maggot. He um, decided he was going to manage us yeah. and uh, and put us in a few things. And yeah. uh, so I would say 74, then 75 as a team. Then we split up in the early part of 76. What, um, now, what now? What was the decision there? Was it acrimonious? No, no. I, I don't. I don't think it was. It was for me. Um, there's a. If you read our book, uh, Tim and Tom: A Comedy in Black and White, you'll see uh, dueling versions of why. Uh, but as I think back on it, many years ago, what I was feeling, uh, you know, I, I could. We weren't making any money. Yeah, and I had left Dupont. And I mean, we, we were not, we were in financially, uh, yeah. in, in difficult times. And so I'm going, if this is show business, maybe I made the wrong choice. Right. This is not the way. Poverty was never anything I was ever going to be. I had lived through that as a young person and I didn't want it in my life. And yeah. I was like, this thing could end up being uh, a bad mistake. Although the company DuPont had always offered me an, a, a job if I wanted to return, I looked at it, I'm going, this is not working. I'm not making any money here. I'm not, you know, I got uh, two kids at that time. He had uh, three and it was very difficult. Wow. I, said, I can't do this. I got to make some money. So I began to look at other options, not from comedy, but I started acting, doing commercials, any way that I could make some money uh, in this field of entertainment. Did you guys do the, but did you, were you at the comedy store? Uh, no, at that time we hadn't, the comedy store back then, comedy store didn't really start as what it became until 75. But you guys were already broken up by then? Yeah, we, we split up in 76. Uh, we worked there with, with Sammy, did our stuff together, but it was nobody. I mean, had no crowds. And then, uh, when we split up, um, it became more and more successful. And uh, I worked there as, as a solo. Uh, I was working you know, at those times, let's see, who were the solos? Of course, David Letterman, Jay Leno. Yeah. Um, all of us were struggling, trying to make it. And then some new ones come in, like George Wallace, yeah. all these new people, but uh, Shirley Hemphill, um, uh, Paul, of course, Paul Mooney, and uh, uh, Johnny Witherspoon, yeah. my good buddy. I mean, but we were all struggling. All of us were there at that time struggling. Nobody was, I think the first person to break out was Jimmy Walker. Yeah. And then after that, Freddie Prince came through, but he never really spent a lot of time at the comedy store. He came from New York, hit the big time, got Chico and the man and uh, went straight to stardom who worked, of course, um, at Mr. Kelly's life. Matter of fact, he did his first comedy album at Mr. Kelly's. Yeah. I saw that in the movie. I wrote uh, one of his routines. He liked one of my routines. And uh, he called me. I was living in California at the time. He called me and he said, Tim, and he says, man, I need some more material. I'm running out of material. Can I take your 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 piece that I, one of the pieces I did? And he, I said, yeah, man, because I, I love Freddie. He was, we knew Freddie when he was breaking in in New York when he was like six, 17 years old. Good guy. Working, uh, 18. He was a very good guy. He was a wonderful uh, had a, I mean, he was just had an energy about him that you couldn't help but just, you you know, love his 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 yeah. view of life. He was a fun guy and very funny man on and off stage. Um, and um, so we went out then. When we got out there to work, 
Um, what was the bit? Oh, the bit was about, um, <laughs> I used to do a bit about, uh, as a stand-up, about how the voice of a black man would change uh, when he's talking to his, his brothers, arguing in a car and all, and then when a beautiful woman walked by, you know, when his brothers, uh-huh. he was like, uh, um, you know, very high boy. Hey, man, I don't take this. You know, that guy, yeah, yeah. as soon as the woman walked by, I was like, hey, baby, how you doing? <laughs> and it was a long thing in the punchline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He really liked that. And of course, he did it and changed it into his culture. And uh-huh. uh, if you look on the back of that album, you'll see my name. He gave me credit for it. So. Oh, that's great. That's a great story. So you're out here with all these guys. It's so sad because so many of those guys you mentioned passed away pretty recently. I yeah, talked, you know, yeah. I talked to George Wallace. He's okay, but uh, Mooney's yeah. gone and Witherspoon's gone. And... Yeah. Well, a lot of them, uh, George Miller. Uh, He's I gone, mean, yeah. So many of them um, who, it, <laughs> back then, um, Comedy is a, a hard business. Yeah, I mean, comedy is not to be taken lightly. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. may use that euphemism, but and it's not so much busy and difficult in terms of what you do. It's it's what it does to you on the inside. And if you're not um, strong enough on the inside to take the the downside of it, uh, it can really wreck your life. I mean, it can it can drive you into uh, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. Yeah. If, if, you know, it is so many of them. Oh, uh, I know. Yeah. It, yeah. I don't have to tell you. It's, it's, it's not a, to have, to have survived. I, I, Tom and I were together recently talking about it. And, uh, of course I, I say to him and he says to me, neither of us would be where we are today. Had we not come together and gone in the trenches together and fought for six years uh, and taking the defeat and taking the victories together. The defeats are, whew, I have, I've had some horrible things happen to me, losing people I love, but not many of them have ever reached the, the depth of the pain you feel when you bomb and it doesn't go well and your life is on it. I mean, <laughs> it's a deep pain or the euphoria yeah. of, when you hit, I mean, when you hit, yeah. I mean, when you got that, you in that zone, yeah, and you know you rule the room. Yeah. You got these people; they're all living off of your energy. Yeah, and the high from that is is not a drug ever invented. Yeah, that can top the high. Yeah, and so when you when you have to live with those kinds of roller coaster rides and yeah. profession. It, it 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 can uh, if if you're not strong enough it can uh, it can change your life in ways that you would hope. But it would. you never got you never got screwed up though. No, we we were again. You know, I keep saying uh, Tom and I had not only a few things in common. One of them was we had seen so much of tragedy as young people, yeah, as kids, right. poverty, drug abuse, alcoholism. We'd seen. I lived at my grandma had a rooming house. My aunt yeah. had one of the biggest whorehouses in, in Norfolk, and uh, I stayed there for a year. And That's the thing you had in common with Richard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard would talk about that. Well, you know, he did the same thing I did. You know, Johns would be waiting. We, I danced with Nichols. <laughs> you know, and then you see uh, transit people, the lives of transit people. My grandmother's rooming house, people would come and go, and, and you would see these broken men 
you know, who were just hanging in there. Yeah. You know, a few of them I got to know, not deeply, but I got to talk to them. And you hear their stories, World War II veterans, um, whoever they are, things that had gone bad for them. So when you see that, you come away and you live through segregation. You know, you get chased by the Klan or dogs turned on you. When you get to Hollywood and they start throwing heavy things at you, it ain't quite so bad. You go, that's all you got? Yeah. <laughs> you got to come yeah. a little stronger than that, white guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> uh, and, and Tom and I were able to, at the weakest part of, of our venture, when things weren't going well, we would look at each other. And one thing we knew was we weren't going to let whatever that was stop us. And we'd get into arguments um, uh, and everything. I mean, one of my favorite Mr. Kelly arguments, we had the first show didn't go as well as we had hoped. And of course, what two comics will do um, is blame the other. Sure. So we had this big argument of blaming, you know, I'm blaming him. He's blaming me. And, and uh, it was, we were just shouting up. Uh, at each other yeah. the energy of, of that first show and the negative energy of that first show and somebody knocked at the door now uh, uh i don't know if you ever heard of a gentleman by the name of herb Cupsonit, uh-uh. but uh herb Cupsonit was mr entertainment he was the male head of hopper of chicago he had a column in chicago sun Times, and if you were entertained and you didn't get in his column yeah you didn't get reviewed by him uh, he could he could literally help a career, and he took a liking to Tom and I very early on. We did Purple Heart Cruise; he would have every year for war veterans, and uh, you, we got some very favorable reviews from him. Well, he would always come up to to, to meet us be, uh, before the show. I don't know that Tim, and we're yeah. yelling and scrambling and and da da da, boom, boom, boom. and Tom knew he was coming, and he bam bam bam, and I I don't know. Tom said, "Be quiet." That, that's probably a uh, cup. And me not believing him uh, said something very uh, nasty. <laughs> and while I was saying it, because I didn't think he was there. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I don't, and open the door and he was standing right there looking at me in my face. And I'm thinking, <laughs> my career is over. <laughs> my career. And he just looked at me. He said, Tim, uh, his wife was with him. <laughs> Tim, uh, Calm down, fellas, calm down. <laughs> and they came in and sat us down and talked to us. And uh, I will never forget that. And then we went down and had a great show. So when you were at the store, like, and you were going solo, was that when he started acting more? Was that when Richard was around? <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would like, I, I have to say, I was, uh, I always thought I could, I could make an audience laugh. That wasn't a problem. But I didn't love stand-up. Tom loves stand up yeah. and Tom uh, is and was um, a better comic than I was. He understood uh, the, the mechanism of comedy. He understood how to structure it in his favor. And he also loved it. He would work all every night. He'd go somewhere. Me, I was like, nah, I'd rather be an actor. I don't really want to people, you know, make me laugh. So um, my heart wasn't in it, to say the least. And I started acting a lot. And I remember Richard saying to me one night, I, I had performed at the comedy store in the main room and uh, done well. And when I was coming down, Richard was sitting in the back. Uh, he often would just come in sometime and just watch, yeah. watch whoever was working. And he said, come in, man. He said, uh, he said you're doing well in the, I forgot what show I was on. I think I was on KRP. He said, you're doing well. I said, yeah, Rich, I'm doing 
doing well, man. He said, yeah. He said, but let me tell you something. He said, don't ever give up the stand-up. Don't ever give it up. Yeah. <laughs> he said, don't ever give it up. And uh, he was a little ticked with me because I, I, I uh, whenever I saw him later in, in life, he, he was a little ticked that I didn't stick with the stand-up. Really? Yeah. Well, didn't you, were you on that show he did with all those comedy store people? Oh, yeah. That was before. That was in 76. We had only, I had just been to uh, L.A. about a year, year and a half when that happened. He used everybody, right? Robin and Sarah Bernhardt. Yeah, Robin Williams, everybody. It was, it was, he needed an ensemble. And, um, and Paul Mooney went to him and said, look, Richard, you, you work best when you're working off of other people. So let me put together a team. And so he put together the team, brought us all on. Uh, Paul Mooney did. Yeah. And those shows were probably 80% improv. Really? They would come out. Here's the sketch. Here's the uh, costumes. This is a setup. You at the Star Wars bar. Go for it. And it was a. It was like being in boot camp for comedy. It was unbelievable. Uh, I, somebody should write a book. I, I about the Richard Pryor show. That. About the behind the scenes of the Richard Pryor show. It was phenomenal. I mean, the things that went on, just, just and the people involved. It was. Um, it's never been anything like it in my career. I've done about twenty, twenty six, twenty seven television series in my in my career over the last 50 years and while all of them have been unique nothing has been as unique as those four episodes we've done on the prior show you think it, it was a good like entry into thinking on your feet and being on camera and all that stuff i think it was it was not only just that but it also gave all of us a sense of power yeah. You know, it wasn't just that we were funny or individually could do improvisation. It made all of us, especially uh, myself, Robin Williams, all of us, it made us realize the power that we had as a comic, the kind of presentation that could, could, could change the face of what people thought about comedy. Yeah. I mean, uh, prior to that, uh, Robin was funny, but he wasn't quite as as dominant as he was after that huh. you know he found his 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 power and i think i found a certain amount in mine and certainly the spoon all of us did it was we never had that kind of freedom before and richard was there to drive the whole richard thing. was there and he was the leader and as i said it was boot camp and we had the best drill and structure in the history of comedy <laughs> huh. that's amazing but yeah you know um like all of us, we loved him for who he was. We loved him for what he did. And we loved him for how he thought about uh, humanity. You know, it was, it was, um, there are few people who ever been able to walk that path the way he did. What do you think it was exactly? How, how do you characterize that path? Oh, boy. Oh, a path of, of truth. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, storytellers must understand the path of truth. Uh -huh. I don't care how you medium, whether it's writing, singing, dancing, yeah. whatever, however you tell a story, however you use your body, your yeah, mind, yeah. you must have an understanding of the power of truth and use it uh, 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 to, for your purpose. And he did that. Um, matter of fact, when, when he was, he was um, forced out of the business for a brief period after he had started working in Vegas, you know, like I say, when I first saw him, Ed Sullivan. Yeah. That wasn't the same company yeah. who did uh, 
Craps, the album Craps. Right. You mean, <laughs> you mean after after he hit the wall in Vegas and blew it up? Yeah. Well, they took him out. I mean, he, they didn't want him. They didn't want him there. He he could not he could not become who they wanted him to become. He didn't want to lose his truth, and his truth was born in his existence at his at his uh, grandmother's uh, whorehouse. Yeah. His existence, the people he had seen, the characters that you see when you were at the depths of struggle and you survive, you can't, that, that makes you a little bit uh, aware, more aware than the average person. Well, it gives you at that, that empathy. Yeah. 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 And, and also that, that anger and that truth, that power that you want to, you want to um, use your power to change, to affect people, to shock people, to get them to understand the depths of the, their deeds. Yeah. And if you look at his routines, um, uh, even back before Craps, but when you get Craps, that album, I remember the first time you had to buy it and you go to the record store and you had to buy it. They had it under the counter. Yeah. They, would, they didn't even have it out. And when you sit down and listen to the routine, um, it, 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 it was such truth that I had never heard that kind of truth before mm. in, in a very, in a funny uh, way. I never heard it. Never heard that kind of truth. And mm. I think that that was after him leaving Vegas, hanging out in Oakland, going back to the source, being around the people that he had grown up with and realizing that he owed them their truth. And then when he started coming back and he did Crabs and a few other albums after that, uh, he was a, he, he found his base. Yeah. As a comic, I never found my base. Uh, uh, Tom found his base. And you've got to have that base. You got to know what what your platform is. And I know what it is in life. I know what it is when I speak to people. I know what it is when I act. But as a comic, I never really took the time to to, to discover my base. And uh, I didn't have that that Vegas moment that Richard had. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, I, you know, you know, in your heart, if you if 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 you want to live on that stage, it, it's not just living. It's I could make some money on the stage as a comic, um, but again, it's back to truth. A comic uh, today, the closest I know to that kind of truth is Dave Chappelle. Yeah, and I mean, he's flying close to the sun, and uh, I pray that uh, he doesn't um, crash into it. I mean, because his truth—he's being propelled by his 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 place, his truth—and uh, it's it's a. It's a very uh, uh, difficult uh, platform to maintain, as you saw with Richard. You saw with some Ed, 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 Lenny Bruce. Uh, you know, you name those people, and there aren't that many. You name those people who sacrifice uh, their being for truth, and um, it's it's a noble and incredible life to choose on stage. Um, I, my, I don't know why. I think maybe my anger, I, I jokingly tell people I suffer from PSSD, which is post-segregation stress disorder. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and uh, it, it is in my life. It, and it comes out sometimes in a funny way, a positive way, but I, I can't shake it. And I don't think, um, I, I just couldn't shake it on stage the way Richard found a place for it. But he, he, it, it, it exercised him in another way. You know, he found a place for it on stage. He could, you know, uh, I was with with him uh, the night myself, Paul Mooney, Spoon, a bunch of us with it night at the Sunset Live on the Sunset Strip. And he, the first night he bombed. 
Right. And uh, I mean, it was it was very painful to watch because this is our hero. Um, but we all we all knew that that was just that night. It just didn't his groove. He just didn't get there. Yeah. And he came. And we were there the next night when he came back. Yeah. And it's one of the funniest shows that I've ever seen. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you could, you, when you go that deep, you go that far, and you're able to come back. Yeah, you know, uh, and do it. It doesn't destroy you. That says a lot, you know. Yeah, but, uh, it's interesting that you kind of carry that with you. That what you felt like he he was disappointed in you. Yeah, he was. I no question about it. But he was always nice to me. Richard, Richard was was always. Um, <laughs> was always, uh, I guess the word nice is the best way to say it. He always treated me um, in, in a very cordial or warm way without being, you know, that were just, was just between us. Yeah. And again, it had to do with our background. It had to do with how we both uh, witnessed things at an early age. And you don't, you don't share those wounds. And anybody else who's had it can, can spot it in someone. I could have, I spotted in Tom. You don't you don't forget that you respect that anybody who goes through that and survives you respect. And and when you when you were on WKRP, I mean that, I mean that was one of those shows that people loved it. And you know I have to assume that not unlike your comedy family, those people must have been become a family with you and Hessman and those people. It was a family, and many of us um, are still are connected today. I mean, it was back in the days when. Uh, ensemble comedy was at its, its height of, of acceptance in our, in our business. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. Um, <laughs> it's funny, uh, Howard Hessman, who played Johnny Fever, Howard Hessman used to be with a group called the Ace Trucking Company. Yeah, with Fred Willard, was it? Yeah, Fred Willard, a yeah. dear friend we lost. Uh, and they did a routine. And I, we, when Tom and I decided to, to go into show business, we had no idea what our act was going to be. We just started writing stuff. And one night I was watching the Carson show and out came the Ace Trucking Company. And they did a routine of teaching uh, the black gentleman, teaching one of the white gentlemen how to be black. And it was hysterical. Now, I saw it. I told Tom about it. I said, now, I don't know. I know we're not supposed to steal but it, we, it's a natural for us. We've got to find a way to work that routine, hide the stuff that we've stolen, <laughs> and work that routine. And sure enough, we, uh, we trotted into it. And we did it as close to what we could do that wasn't quite like theirs. But any comic knows where the, the germ, the, the seed yeah. of the routine. So when I got KRP, and uh, I'm sure word had gotten back to them at that time because we were doing becoming a quite not quite successful, but more successful than people or any other black and white comedy team. So when I got on the set and I saw Howard Hessman, he looked at me. I looked at him and I said, "Yes, we." <laughs> <laughs> I had to be a couple moments when I confessed our sin, and uh, I think we laughed because uh, they had broken up at that time. And uh, we became, of course, dear friends. Yeah. But, uh, oh, you did it. You, you you told the truth. I had to. I had to. <laughs> you still talk to him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're different. That's nice, man. You know, because I talk to a lot of people. They don't hold on to those relationships, you know. But you guys were together for years. I mean, how many years? Yeah. 
Uh, we're actually four years. It seems longer, but we were there four years. And but it was a again uh, a, a different kind of experience. We were more involved in the making of that show because of the creator Hugh Wilson, who passed away uh, uh, a couple years ago. And it was through his guidance and his openness to allow us. He allowed. That's how I got in the writers' deal. I wrote a few of the episodes. Richard wrote. Some of us directed. Um, and we we got we cut our teeth behind the scene and the behind the camera. I produced a couple of the shows, oh. you know, taking it all the way through delivery to the network. Yeah. So I learned a lot about the business and the power of the business behind the scene uh, that I never would have the opportunity to do. And did you you had your own show, didn't you, for a while? I've had several. Yeah, I did. I did a couple of shows. Some I created and um, got got one that was probably one of the more interesting shows in the history of television. Frank's Place. Yeah. Nominated for nine Emmys. I remember that. Yeah, it was um, it was a quite quite a show. And um, uh, I actually had Tom on KRP. He came on and he played a white guy working at an all black radio station. <laughs> That's funny. And it was a great, great episode. That's funny. And you worked with, yeah. you did a lot of episodic TV. You worked with uh, Ed Asner. Yeah, we work with, I work with Ed. I work with, um, like I said, I don't think there's, and I, somebody would have to prove prove me wrong, but I don't think there's anyone who's done as many television series as I have in the history of television. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> I would have liked for one to go on 12 years as opposed to having 12. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Over a period of 12 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But now, where where are you at now with the with work? What do you what are you doing right now? I am a behind the scenes more. Uh, I just directed a feature film that'll be not a feature film, a TV movie that'll be out uh, in November. I am launching a a streaming service um, uh, for the African diaspora, covering Africa, Europe, and uh, and North America. Uh, about two or three channels. I had it up, tested it for about eight months. Now we're going to go broad with it. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Africa, Ethiopia, in particular South Africa uh, and uh, Cape Verde. And the history there is so rich. What, so, what draws so, you to that? Um, I've always been uh, a, a lover of travel and I've always been someone who just delves into history. That that goes back to my segregated community. Although we were segregated in a sense from the dominant culture, we were very much involved with the history of the African diaspora because um, I had teachers. We had an incredible uh, education uh, at that time. My high school, uh, my elementary school, and my college, I went to all black uh, teachers, all black. And many of them were young, uh, World War II veterans, Vietnam was just beginning. And these young folks, had gone to these historically black colleges. This turned out so many uh, important uh, leaders and, and business people in this country. And so their, their love for history, love for, for culture that wasn't in our history book yeah. filtered through their program. So yeah. I was exposed to a lot of stuff that I normally would not have been exposed to in an integrated community, huh. especially nowadays when you can't even, you know, now we got Texas and saying you can't even teach that kind of stuff anymore. It's uh, uh, so I decided since uh, the public school system won't be teaching it the way it should, there has to be an outlet for it so that young people get a sense of of history other than just slavery. Africa is a lot more than just slavery and minerals. 
Uh, there are people there, 1.3 billion people, and they have a history and a culture. Yeah. And let's learn as much about it as we can. That's great. And also, what I also love about uh, the people of uh, the diaspora, no matter where it comes from, Italy, Israel, when people leave their country and come and settle in another country, they change the way people live there. They, they bring their food, they bring their culture, their yeah. dance, their music, and it's integrated in, in this wonderful place called America. Well, uh, I think we need to know how those things are integrated into the community. How did uh, life change in, in these countries? So when I travel to, I was in, I was in the Marshall Islands, uh, visiting the military. And I, I'm on a flight, short flight from, I forgot what, one of these small islands somewhere else. And everybody in the plane looked like they came from Detroit. And I'm looking at them saying, where are you from? And they said, no, no, we, we're from the Marshall Islands. I said, what do you mean you're from the Marshall Islands? You look like somebody that I know from Detroit. We were joking about it. Yeah. And then I get there and I see this incredible culture. I'm intrigued. How did you get here? Would you come over with Captain Cook? I mean, where, yeah. where did this culture come from? And the, the history and the story of it is quite unique. It's like when I went to Brazil for the first time. I love Brazil. And I go to Brazil. Bahia and places like that. And I'm looking at people who look more like me than they do here in Virginia. And I'm going, what? And then I find out that the majority of slaves coming from the continent of Africa settled in, uh, in Brazil, South America. I mean, that's the majority. 90 of, I guess it was Bush that went to Brazil for the first time when he was president. And he was shocked that there were so many black people. Well, uh, I think out of a country of 150 million, 80 to 90 million of Afro-Brazilian. So let's talk about that culture. Let's talk about Condomble. Let's talk about that stuff. It's important. It's 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 so important now, too, because it's being threatened. Being threatened. So I think, but also I think it, one of the reasons it's being threatened is because to protect it, you know, the dominant culture, whoever they may be at any country, the dominant culture wants to protect its position. Yes. And it doesn't want everybody to think that, they want everybody to think that they did everything. Of course, that's just the nature of egotistical nature of, of a human being. But when you look at the other involvement of people, uh, I, I was when I was in Ethiopia, I mentioned to them something that they did not know. Here's a country that for over 3,000 years has never been ruled by anybody but a African. Uh, it's never been conquered. It was occupied for a couple of years by the Italians before they defeated them. But it's never been conquered. It has an interesting history. So I was telling them, I said, you know, Ethiopians are warriors. They like, they are like, you know, they go off and fight. They fought in Korea. The majority of people that fought in Korea were, were not just Americans, were Ethiopians. Many of them settled in, the, in, in, in Korea. So you see, I'm going, but did you know that the first battle won in 1775 before Washington defeated anybody was won by a troop of Ethiopians, <laughs> they they won the first battle of our War of Independence. They were mercenaries. A group of, a group of mercenaries over here fought no and kidding. won the first battle. Uh, uh, you know, and you look at stuff like that. You say, why is that interesting? Well, it's just interesting to show how cultures, um, despite all this, the, the the negative racist history of, our, of 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 countries, there are people who have managed to work together, to do things, to change history. That to me is interesting. And those people who do it, uh, I, I, I know we, was, you know we came together today to talk about the incredible club called Mr. Kelly's. But when you look back, if I were to do history of entertainment, you have to do 
what what's being done with this documentary. You have to talk about this club during the time of the, of the um, early 50s all the way up through the 70s that what was going on contextually, not only in race, but in gangsters and yeah. Chicago. This club was a, a almost like a watering hole where all all species would come. Yeah. You know, all races would come and perform and yeah. sit. And and they allowed people into the room that most folks didn't want to go in the room. Women, I mean, Lily Tomlin up talking about sexism and stuff like that, yeah. and, you know, and going after it. Where else could she do that? Yep. You couldn't do it in Vegas. So Mr. Kelly had Kelly's uh, well, I'm pleased and to not only be a part of it, but to see it come out now is because I think the country needs to see more of that kind of history uh, as opposed to, you know, everything about the worst of us or the tragedy of us. Yeah, I think that's good. That's a hopeful message. I don't have a, I don't, uh, I'm not always able to find hope, but I, and, but I think that's true. I think that's a, a good way to find it. Well, again, my life changed sitting in that bar one night watching a person perform that inspired me so that I went after that dream and lo and behold, I'm sitting here talking today, um, and it happened in a very short amount of time. Had I not gone that night, had I not been so stupid to believe I could get in a club without reservations on New Year's Eve, yeah. I wouldn't attempt that today. Um, my life has changed. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing, yeah. Tim. It's great talking to you, buddy. My pleasure, man. I enjoyed it. Yeah, take care of yourself. I will. You too. That was Tim Reed. The documentary is live at Mr. Kelly's. You can check out some of the other things he mentioned. A lovely gentleman. Nice guy. Nice to get back into the history. I like the old comedy store stuff. And I like that. That that place, Mr. Kelly's, must have been amazing. Must have been amazing. Nothing is ever going to get better ever again. There are no more tunnels to get through. This is how it's going to be. Ride it out. Adapt fixing might be over I don't know is that negative here's my attempt at some metal
Boomer lives. Monkey and LaFonda. Cat angels everywhere, man. Thank you.